Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Thursday broadcast of Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining us today. We have been going through the book of Philippians, and I love the book of Philippians, and uh, we can call this a journey of joy. And today I want to talk to you about where are your passions? Where is my passion? You know, your passion will determine how you spend your time. Your passion will determine how you invest your money. Your passion will determine how you use the gifts that God has given you. Now, Tom Rainer is uh, one who analyzes churches and what is causing them to grow, what is causing them not to grow. And he says one of his greatest joys in research is talking to and listening to those who clearly identify themselves as non-Christians. Now, he says, don't get me wrong, I'm not celebrating their absence of faith in Christ. He says, my joy comes from listening to those who don't believe as I do so that I can better equip myself to witness to them. So over the past few years, his research teams have interviewed literally thousands of unchurched Christians. Among the more interesting insights that he has gleaned is that those that he has interviewed will share their perspectives of Christians. In one particular article, he writes about the seven most common types of comments in order of frequency. So as we look at this list, I'm gonna go through it kind of quickly with you today. I think it gives us a good representation as to where non-Christians are as far as their view of how they view Christians. So let's look at these comments. Number one, Christians seem to be against more than they are for. Uh, One person said this, it just seems to me that Christians are mad at the world and they're mad at each other. They are so negative, they seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them and stay upset all the time. And that's a good point, isn't it? Uh, So let's look at our lives and say, what kind of image do I reflect to the world? Do they look at me and say, you're against a whole lot of things, but you're not for a whole lot of things? Now, I want you to know that we are for much more than we are against. We are for the gospel. We are for changed lives. We are for the understanding that God can take somebody who is wretched and somebody who has no hope and give them hope. We are for forgiveness. We are for lives being transformed. There's a lot of things that we're for. You know, I think about even things about like government. Some people say, well, you're against government. No, I'm for good government. You know, the role of government ought to be this. Uh, According to the Bible, is it to, it's given the responsibility of rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. So I'm for government because it was God's idea. You know, God has three institutions. He has the family, human government, and the church. God created all three of them. He started with the family. I think that's the most important institution that God has created. God created Adam and Eve, and that was the very first family. Then God created human government so that we wouldn't be a bunch of vigilantes, and we wouldn't be taking the law into our own hands, but government would be established to reward good and punish evil. And then as we get to Acts chapter 2, we see that God established the church. And the church is going to be around until the rapture takes place. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And so I am for the church. I love the church. I love what the church stands for. I love the members of the church. I love the founder of the church, Jesus Christ. Uh, So there's a whole lot of things that I want my friends who don't know Christ to know that we believe. Number two, Rainer found that many would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, They thought Christians are more against things than they are for, but yet they would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. Somebody put it this way, I'm really interested in what they believe and how they carry out their beliefs. 
I wish I could find a Christian who'd be willing to spend some time with me. So here's a good point. Don't get so busy that you don't have time to develop friendships with non-Christians. Jesus was accused of being a friend of the sinners. As a matter of fact, they said, you're eating over there with sinners. Why don't you come eat with us? Well, Jesus understood that in order to win people, he had to spend time with people. Well, here's the third thing. The third comment that was found about why non-believers don't understand or don't appreciate Christians, but they said, number three, I would like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. Somebody put it this way as they were being interviewed. They said, the Bible really fascinates me, but I don't know, uh, and I don't want to go to a stuffy, legalistic church to learn about it. It would be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or in a place like Starbucks. Oh, I want you to know that we do that at Hickory Ridge Community Church. We have small groups that meet throughout the week. And if you're listening to this broadcast and you want to connect with one of our small groups, uh, I'd be happy to let you connect with one of our groups. Here's the third thing they said. It says, I don't see much difference in the way that Christians live compared to others. I really can't tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't seem much different than other people that I know. The only exception would be the Mormons. They really seem to take their beliefs seriously. Wow. Now that's kind of an indictment against Christians, that they don't see a difference in the way they live compared to others in our world. Here's the fifth thing that came through. I wish I could learn to be a better husband, wife, dad, mom, etc. from a Christian. One person said, my wife is threatening to divorce me. And I think she means it this time. My neighbor is a Christian, and he seems to have it all together. I am swallowing my pride and asking him to help me. Now, that's a good thing, right? Christians, we ought to be ones who are able to lead others, not only to the saving knowledge of Christ, but also to help them to be better husbands, wives, dads, and moms, to be better members of society. Number six. Some Christians try to act like they have no problems. Here's an example. Harriet works in my department. She is one of those Christians who seems to have a mask on. I would respect her more if she didn't put on such an act because I know better. In other words, they know we have the same exact problems they have, but it appears to them that we are faking it until we can make it. Number seven. I wish a Christian would take me to his or her church. You know, I read a stat that said 66 million Americans would love to come to church to visit if somebody would just invite them. One person said, I really would like to visit a church, but I'm not particularly comfortable going by myself. What is weird is that I am 32 years old and I've never had a Christian invite me to church in my entire life. Do you see the pattern? Non-Christians want to interact with Christians. They want to see Christians' actions, and and they want to see their beliefs. They want Christians to be real. In one study, they concluded that only 5% of non-Christians are actually antagonistic toward Christians. It's time to stop believing the lies that we've been told. Jesus said it clearly. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers into the harvest You know, as I think about these stats, these are quite interesting. Did you know that 20% of Americans ask themselves regularly, if I were to die, would I go to heaven? One in five people, 89%, are asking 
this question. What does it take to be a Christian? As we look at these stats, it's amazing because they are looking to us for answers, but too many times we are silent. When we think about doing kind acts, Jesus says, let your goodness be made known or let your light so shine before men that they may see your goodness and they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now the tragedy is that 96% of Christians have never shared the gospel or never been involved in bringing someone to faith. So I guess we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of opportunities that lie before us. Dr. John Sorensen, president of Evangelism Explosion International, which is a ministry that has trained literally millions of Christians around the world to share their faith, discusses the state of evangelism. And on his research, he has discovered there are certain myths about evangelism, but there's also certain methods of evangelism. We need to be able to communicate with encouragement. Paul writes a letter, and he tells these guys to share the gospel wherever they go. But in order for us to be effective in sharing the gospel, we must live a life of integrity. In other words, we must have a message that is powerful and is powerfully lived out in our lives. We must be intentional about sharing the gospel. Don't shy away from sharing the gospel. Share the gospel with compassion, realizing that people want to understand what our faith is all about. It was St. Francis who said, Bad theology is witnessed by my action." The longer and the better you know somebody, the harder it is to share the gospel. If we will not mention Jesus, we are stealing the glory of God for our own benefit. So start just by sharing the gospel with somebody today. Find somebody that you know, that you love, that you want to share that gospel with. Have a vision for how you can share the gospel with them, and then go ahead and share the gospel. You want to think about how we can be intentional. I think it involves certain things in our lives. Number one, you have to have a vision for doing it. If you can dream it, you can achieve it, right? Have a vision for how you can reach somebody. I think about when my wife and I were dating. I had this vision of how I was going to convince her that she should marry me. That was my vision. I had a, uh, in my mind, I said, I'm going to win her over, and she's one day going to become my wife. took me a little while to convince her, but I finally convinced her. How did that happen? I had a vision. I dreamed of her being my wife. Number two, deal with failure. Remember that failure is an event. It's not a person. If you go through a time where you have failed, that is an event. Don't consider yourself a failure just because you have had some failures. It's only in an event. Get past it, learn from it, and move on. Number three, remember you get what you are. You know, if you're looking for a friend, you're going to find they're very, they're, they're out there. If you're not looking to be a friend, you're not going to find a friend. If you go out to be a friend, you'll find them everywhere. The Bible says that he that hath friends must show himself to be friendly. So if you want to share the gospel with somebody, you've got to start by sharing the gospel with somebody. Live the gospel, share the gospel, be a friend with somebody, and to discover that you have the opportunity to spread the gospel. Number four, look for ways to daily affirm people. People often say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does taking a bath. That's why we recommend it daily. Neither does eating, right? You eat and then you get hungry. We need daily affirmation. I think that people constantly need to be encouraged. You know, there's a great ministry in encouragement. 
Find somebody who is having a hard time. You know, especially when you're having a hard time, find somebody that's having a hard time and says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to encourage that person. You will discover that God brings about encouragement to you. Number five, mind before body. If you want to reach a goal, you must see the reaching in your own mind before you actually arrive at your goal. Mind before body. In other words, I see what's going to happen and then I follow through with that action. In other words, I have that goal in mind, and I begin with that goal, and then I take the steps toward reaching that goal. Number six, look at what really matters. Lack of direction, not lack of time, is the problem. We all have the same 24 hours a day, 168 hours a week. Look at what really matters in your life. Look at that direction. Don't look at the time that you have or don't have. Look at where you want to go and head in that direction. Number seven. Be willing to experience delayed gratification. You know, the chief cause of failure and unhappiness is trading what you want most for what you want right now. Our children need to learn delayed gratification, but so don't adults. You may be listening to me today and say, man, I am in a financial mess right now because I'm an impulsive purchaser. I see something, I buy it. And today it has been easier and easier to buy things that we don't need with Amazon and all these opportunities with a click of a mouse to quickly buy things. But if you will learn the art and the discipline of delayed gratification, you will discover that you have true, long-lasting happiness. Number eight, be positive. There has never been a statue erected to honor a critic. Be positive. Realize that life is not fair. Setbacks come into your life. But as you look at the opportunities that God has given to you, if you can be positive, realizing that God is going to work all things out for his glory and for our good, you can be positive no matter how bad things get. Number nine, hard work. Don't be afraid of hard work. There are no traffic jams on the extra mile. As you think about hard work, The difference between those who do well and those who excel uh, is the difference between hard work and passive work. Number 10, attitude matters most. Your attitude, not your aptitude, will determine your altitude. Now, I think Paul had all these things in the back of his mind, and I think that's how he felt about the congregation of the Philippian believers. I think that's how most pastors feel about their church. I know that's how I feel about the congregation at Hickory Ridge Community Church. As Paul is addressing his church, this is an address that we could give to any local church. Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my absence, but now much more in my presence. Now they are taking to heart what Paul is about to say, and they are actually living out what Paul proclaimed. So Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, if you want joy to remain in you, if you want to live in passion with Jesus, the work that God did in you, he wants to work out through you, starting with salvation. He wants you to share the work that he's done in you, and he wants that work to continue in you so that it can be worked out through you. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, it says that God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. 
It is a gift of God. I'm sorry, that's the wrong reference. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a reference that I'm quoting. God saved you when you believed. And that way you can't take any credit for it. It's a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that I've done. So none of us can boast in it. So as we go back and look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13, we discover some vital, important facts about God and what he's doing. The first thing we discover is that God is always working. You know, I'm so glad that he never gets tired of working on me. I believe that God has got his work cut out when he works with me. But Paul reminded the believers in Philippi that God is at work within you. He's helping you to want to obey you, and then he's helping you to do what he wants. So the desire is given to us by God, and the ability is given to us by God. In Romans 8, 31, it says, you know what, if God is for us, nobody can defeat us. I love that. God's for me, I don't have to worry about anybody defeating me. They may come against me, but if God is for me, my enemies will be defeated. In John 6, 26, it says, what we must do We must work the works of God. The work of God is to believe in him who has sent us. So here's my question for you. Are you growing more like Christ through his word? That's how God works. He works through his word. So get into the word and allow the word to get into you and you discover that he will take you in places that you never thought were possible. Here's the second thing that we must remember. Not only is God always working, but number two, We must have the attitude of gratitude. Verse 14 of Philippians 2 says, Do everything, everything, without complaining, without arguing. I've discovered there are four kind of complainers. There are the whiners, right? Whining all the time. I used to coach a bunch of kids in t-ball, and I would tell them, whiners are not winners, and winners are not whiners. The second kind of complainer is the cynic. They're the ones that are believing that, ah, it's never going to work out. You're wasting your time. They're always cynical of no matter what is offered up. The third type of complainer is the martyr. The one that has that martyr's complex. Oh, nobody understands how hard I've worked. Nobody understands all I've done for them. Oh, these children don't appreciate me one iota. I've done so much for them. You know, sometimes pastors have that mindset. They get the martyrs complex and they and they think, well, nobody in their church appreciates all the work they do. Nobody affirms them. And, and they go down that path of being a martyr. And then there's a fourth kind of complainer. And that is the perfectionist. Waiting for perfect conditions to come and always complaining that things are not perfect. You know, if you wait for perfection, you're never going to accomplish anything. Don't wait for perfect conditions. When God moves, you respond. When God speaks, you respond. These four types of complainers do not have the attitude of gratitude. They one day will be judged. Uh, Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. He says, I promise you that on that day of judgment, everyone will give an account for every careless word that they have spoken. That's kind of a convicting passage of scripture, isn't it? Every word that I have said carelessly, I'm going to give an account of. But here's some good news. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 reminds us that we should be thankful in all circumstances because this is God's will for us, for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So here's my question. Are you more thankful or are you considered more critical? Here's the third thing that we want to look at. 
we must maintain not only this attitude of gratitude, not only must we realize that God is always working, but number three, we must maintain a clear conscience. We're down to verse number 15 of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, You are to live clean, innocent lives as children of God in this very dark world of people who are crooked and stubborn. Shine out among them like beacons of light. Now that's the Living Bible translation. But I love how that's put together. That we are living as children in the light, not children in the dark, and we are shining light into the darkness. We're doing it with a pure conscience. Psalm 119 reminds us that we are happy if we are living pure lives. 1 Peter 3 reminds us that we have a good conscience so that when we are slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ's name may be put to shame. John MacArthur describes the conscience as a built-in warning system. It's a system that signals us when something that uh, in our lives has gone wrong or we've done something wrong. The conscience is our souls to our souls what pain sensors are to our bodies. It inflicts this distress in the form of guilt whenever we violate what our hearts tell us is right. I want to encourage you today that God wants to do mighty things through you. God wants you to operate out of a clear conscience. Don't violate that conscience. Ask yourself, is my conscience biblically pure? Well, number four, we must keep God's word in our hearts. Philippians 2.16 says, Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on that day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. In Psalm 119, we have this passage that will encourage us to live a life of purity. David is writing in verse number 9, and he says, How can a young man keep himself pure? And he answers that question and says, By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. I do not, don't let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts, and I consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not delight in the world. In Psalm 119, verse 16, it says, Your laws make me happy. I never forget your word. Well, there's one final thing we got to look at today. As we think about living a life filled with joy, we must remember that God is always working, that we ought to have the attitude of gratitude, that we should maintain a clear conscience, and that we should be keeping God's word in our hearts. And then finally, we must keep a heart that is soft through sacrifice. Philippians 2, 17 and 18 says that your faith makes you offer yourselves, your lives, as a living sacrifice in serving God. If you have to offer your sacrifice, it's because God has given us his own blood. If we do this, we'll be happy, full of joy. You should also be happy and filled with joy with me. Offering up that sacrifice, but keeping your heart soft in the process. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible 
a verse that I had our church commit to memory a couple years ago is Hebrews 12, 15. And Paul is the writer, I believe, of the book of Hebrews, and he says, I want to remind you of something. He says, I don't want you to miss the grace of God. Look at where God is moving. Look at his grace. Look at how he's blessed you. Because if you miss that, something's going to happen. Your heart is going to become bitter. And that bitter heart will become hardened and defile many. Oh, I want you to know that God hasn't given us a bitter heart. God has given us a new heart. God has given us this opportunity to be shining lights throughout our community. You know, it's through what Christ has done that our world is going to be redeemed. Salvation is to be found in Him alone. In all the world, there is no one else that God has given who can save us except for Jesus Christ. May we be sharing that message wherever we go. Matthew 20, 28 says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give His life as a ransom for many. Oh, my friend, as you've listened to the broadcast today, I hope that has encouraged your heart to be all that God wants you to be. I want to pray that God will allow you to live out your passion, and that is a God-given passion, that you won't run out of energy, you won't run out of steam, that you'll be filled with the Spirit of God. Thank you so much for listening today. I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. God bless you. I love you. I appreciate you listening to us today. I look forward to talking with you tomorrow. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3220 South Battlefield Boulevard, Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We would love for you to join us. For more information, you go to our website at www.hrcc7.org. No matter what you're going through, remember, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.